So, we come to this passage in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, um, which really I was originally going to actually begin at verse 46, but I, I couldn't help but after last week not really finishing verse 43 through verses 45, feeling like we need to bring these together. And in doing so, you know, I originally thought of this message as, are you related to Jesus? And as I worked on this, that would still be what I would call this message. And Jesus moves from these words about cleaned up emptiness to the statement about real family and relationship with him. And as I looked at this, and as I looked over a number of times, I, I had difficulty understanding how these passages relate to one another. In a cursory reading, you kind of almost ask, you got to ask yourself, Matthew, is this just you're just telling history right now and just saying this is what happened? But you have to note also that it's not just a historical, at least sequence. And again, Matthew is not necessarily about putting things in historical sequence, but here I believe there is this historical sequence that's going on. And so why in the world does he, all of a sudden, Jesus actually makes the connection from those words he's speaking to these words? And I, I wrestled with that and didn't come up with an answer. So that's the message today, and let's pray. No. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> let's ask God for his help. Father, it is my desire as I have wrestled with this, and I believe you have spoken to my heart, to be able to let your heart speak through my heart, and for each and every person here to be as best we can in a humble, self-examining place where we're looking at our heart in relation to yours. Teach us, I pray, in this, in Christ's name. Amen. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, and we'll start right with the Scripture. And Jesus is talking here about spiritual realities because spiritual realities, folks, is what under, is the foundation and base to all that happens in life. Whether we want to admit that or not, we look at everything physical, but there are spiritual realities. So that is why prayer is so important. Prayer is about something spiritual, and that's why it's something so hard to do because we don't often see the correlation of what is happening in our spirit to that which is happening externally. But Jesus had no, uh, no break between what he saw in the spirit and what he saw happening externally. So he says, after he's been speaking to these Pharisees, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. He's going to check it out. He wants to know whether he can move back in. And, and Jesus says, when it arrives, it finds a house unoccupied. And I just want to make a comment. It's interesting that Jesus uses the word it here, not necessarily even he or a, a personal pronoun because... It, when, when a, a spiritual being, which we are spiritual beings with physical bodies, but when a spiritual being moves to the place where they lose all personal beingness, it's interesting they become almost its. And when it arrives, it finds the house empty or unoccupied, swept clean and put in order, and then it goes, takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first, and that is how it will be with this wicked generation. And it appears, if this is truly an interruption, that Jesus wasn't fully finished with his message, but as a result of what happened, made a conclusion here, I believe that Matthew includes, 
in these next verses. And while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside. So he's actually in a large, has to be in a large setting, a room or something, that others couldn't get in to hear. They were standing outside waiting, wanting to speak with him, and someone told him, your, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to them, probably rather loudly, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And it's interesting, he's not talking here about father, and I think it's a clear indication that his father Joseph at this point was already dead and probably had been dead for a number of years. So, as I read this, I was reading different commentators and different people who had spoke on this, and one of the persons I came across, I found it to be very interesting because his words applied. Pastor, author, famed Bible teacher John MacArthur from Grace to You Ministries. Some of you are familiar with him. You know, and I quote people from, um, from all different backgrounds, and, and, and I'll be quoting someone else a little bit later in this message. And, and I, I, I've been saying to our, our, our elders and, and our staff, because someone on our staff gave me these wise words, you know, basically um, take the meat and throw out the bones. So whenever I, whenever I read things, I always say, okay, God, help me understand the meat and make, help me be careful not to throw out some bones that have a lot of meat on them. And he says this, John MacArthur, I can remember years ago when I was young, there was a move in our country known as the Moral Rearmament, which was publishing a lot of materials, letters and books, calling America to a moral perspective. Some of you will remember this. There has even been some familiarity in our lifetime with the John Birch Society. Anybody recall the John Birch Society? Yes. And the extreme, he writes, extreme right-wing groups who have called for our, a moral America. So really, it's nothing new. But I would just add that it has never been so much the message of the evangelicals that it has become in the last two to three years. And most evangelical churches are preaching morality, patriotism, loyalty to the standards of America and spending their time influencing legislators, judges, and other national leaders and lobby groups to try to keep America moral or to take America back to a moral position. And they very often spend more time attacking the national drift away from morality than in calling people to, to a vital knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ and a changed heart and life. And they, they want to bring America to a position of morality and most assuredly seek every political avenue possible to accomplish that. And then he says, I want to say at the very beginning that I agree with morality so that I won't be misunderstood. I definitely agree with ethics and morality and standards. And I believe that we should adhere to those which are the truths revealed in the Word of God. Then he made this striking statement, but morality by itself is in many ways more dangerous than immorality. That may shock you, but it shouldn't because that's exactly what we see around the life of Christ. And that is basically what our Lord is teaching in these verses, Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 50. And MacArthur calls these verses... The danger of morality and ethics, religion, reformation, cleaning up your life, changing from evil habits to good habits. And what I found was interesting as I was reading this, I went and I thought, wouldn't it be right this? Because I was thinking, this is probably just recent. He wrote this on December 13th, 1981, almost a generation ago, some 30 years ago, when the moral majority was in its heyday. How many remember the moral majority? And I was a kid in college at that time. 
<laughs> Amen. Amen. And now, nearly a generation later, there seems to be another kind of upheaval in that same move. And again, I'm not in any way saying it's wrong to, um, to go to our legislators and to make differences in our laws. I don't hear that. That's not what I'm saying. And I think far too often we as believers don't take those kind of opportunities to be able to, to influence that. But though it's often the way in which it can be done that can be difficult. And MacArthur would then apply these words, which he, he does, that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago. And it's interesting to me, they haven't really lost their edge. I would divide these basic truths in two different ways. There's an external difference and there is an actual eternal difference between mere reformation and heart relationship. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, is the danger of mere reformation. And he's not talking about a nation, so I don't want you to go on a drift. He's not talking about, we have our responsibilities here. He is really talking about the church and the people of God. He's talking about the mere reformation that can happen within a body of people, within a group of people, which can happen in an individual. And there is a danger of mere reformation. And so then we move to verses 40 through 6 through 50, and, and that's the key. That's the thing that linked it for me. That's the thing that made it clear to me. What Jesus was talking about is be careful. He's confronting these Pharisees about reformation, um, which is an external thing. And he says, the real problem here is, you guys, it's all about heart relationship. Those who are really a part of my family, a part of the family of God, you claim to be followers of Abraham. You actually claim to be physically, um, generationally brought down that line. And you were a part of the, the, all the good gifts that God has given. And yet your heart isn't anywhere near. So that's why he begins to ask this question. And I think he asks this question more as an invitation to people than he does as some kind of declaration. So if you look at verses 43 through 45, again, I only touched on them last week. I'd like to take a moment to, to really examine them more closely. As we've been looking at chapter 11, Matthew looks at the different responses that people have to Jesus, and we've gone through those responses. He now comes to chapter 12, and now he's dealing with a certain kind of response, a response that begins to, to reject Jesus, a response that has conflicts with Jesus on all different kinds of issues, beginning with the Sabbath, which is something external. And he looks at what they're doing, and, he's, and they say, you look at your disciples, they seem to be eating on the Sabbath, and Jesus goes into a whole message there around that, and then they begin to call him, who is the most, in greatest expression of holiness, they begin to project what's in their own hearts onto him and call him the greatest expression of evil. And there's a dramatic break between Jesus and his contemporaries, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, and even to a degree, as we see here in these verses, with his own family. Boy, and any of you who know what it means when you began to follow Jesus Christ, you started to walk in, in what you would call would be truth. And maybe it would be the fact that it's part of your following Jesus Christ. You began to realize that you were living in this very dysfunctional situation and you knew that you needed to kind of walk into what is true and you needed to confront what was true. And whenever you confront that system, which is full of lies and falsity, when you begin to do that, you become rejected because you can't hear the truth. That system won't allow it. Even your own family... Even your mother and father who may love you so dearly, they've given and sacrificed so much for you. But as you begin to walk in truths of your spiritual realities, there is this sense that there is even a break at that level. And you'll find with Jesus that it didn't last forever. And you'll find some of you that when you have done that, you have had parents, you have had brothers, you've had sisters, you've had cousins and, and aunts and uncles who at first rejected you. And eventually they began to see the change in your life. 
And they themselves, God began to work in their hearts and brought them to a place of change. Well, these verses are are not so much really about the conflict between Jesus and his family as much as Matthew, I think, is seeking to demonstrate the reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and the difference between mere reformation and what I would call heart relationship. And so if you look at these verses, you remember that verses 43 and 45 indicate When you have mere reformation going on outside, it it is not just something physical, external. It's just not your mind and your emotions and your will. But in this process, your house becomes clean. Because in you lives a spirit. And there is a spirit of either God himself or you have at some point opened your heart and your spirit to to Jesus Christ. And and as a result of it, if, if there isn't something filled there, if that spirit that comes that does the will of God doesn't enter into that place, it leaves that place empty. So you can, in, in many ways, in, 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 especially in a church and a religious situation and place, you can actually come to a place where you say in your own will and through your own mind, I'm going to do this, but never ever actually come to a place where you've opened your heart and you've said, come in and may your will begin to live through me. And you can actually clean things up and begin to conform your behavior and do those kind of things. And Jesus says that's a very slippery, scary road to walk down. Because the more you begin to do that, the more you get things in order, it leaves things open for other things to come in. And the reality is that there are spirits that come in that can influence. And they really, as you think about it, these Pharisees who were at that time the scribes and others who were the, the religious reformers, They really liked John the Baptist when John the Baptist first showed up. They were intrigued with John the Baptist because they were, in a sense, listening to a guy who was speaking their moralist message, which was about clean up your act because condemnation is coming, until one day, we read in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, one day he turned the message onto them. And it says, when John the Baptist saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming up to where he was baptizing, he looked at them and he said... You brood of vipers. A really interesting term. It's it's this, this nest of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? It's as if heat was beginning to be felt where they were nested and they started to kind of squirm out and they were moving out and they were moving towards him. And he looks at him and he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Which seems to be there can be repentance that doesn't really bring about fruit. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, now they're not happy with John, who came with a moralist message, who was really what you would call the sad guy, which was really more the depressing, condemning kind of message. And then Jesus shows up. He's the glad guy. He's the happy guy. He's, he's walking with tax collector sinners, and, and he's, 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 local, he's actually visiting those people who were the ones who were the outcast, at least looked at in their society. He was hanging out with those kind of crowds, and they're not happy with him either. So that in verse 33, chapter 12, Jesus has to say something similar. He says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, who are evil, say anything good? And then last week we looked at verse 39. And as they asked for Jesus for accreditation papers, you know, prove to us, even though we saw these miracles, we want to see something from heaven that really kind of says you're the guy. And he looks at him, he goes, the wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. 
And if you jump ahead for a moment, I want you to look at Matthew 23, and you'll see again how Jesus seems to be so against Reformation. So at one point in his ministry, chapter 23, and I'm sure you may have said this at other points, but Matthew at this point includes it in verse chapter, chapter 23. The whole chapter is a condemnation on, on, on this kind of moralist Reformation, ethical kind of approach to life. And he says um, in verses 25 through 28, because these verses I think sum up the whole chapter really well. He says, woe to you, or curse on you. Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be clean. And he goes on and he says in verse 27, What are you teachers of the law and Pharisees? You hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which you look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones and of dead and everything unclean. You see how these two teachings kind of match up? In the same way, he says in verse 28, on the outside you appear to be people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Those are really strong terms. Wickedness, vipers, evil. And the real issue that was true about them, and the sad fact is that they didn't recognize it because they were in such a state of illusion. They were living in such a place where their reality that they were creating about themselves would not be penetrated by the truth. And there never lived a group that was more adamantly committed to a moral code of do's and don'ts. And there never lived a group so far from God. That's what you see here. Self-righteousness filled with deceit, leaving a person empty on the inside with no real sense of the reality they're creating. So while they were deeply entrenched in their morality and reformation, they were damned to hell. And Jesus was willing to say so. It appeared, in fact, the more they committed themselves to being moral and upright, the more they set in concrete their own judgment. That's what he seems to be saying. They cleaned up their lives outwardly, and so effectively they did not do this. And, 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 and as they did this, they, they did it, I think, so effectively that they convinced even themselves, not just others around them, but they convinced, convinced themselves that they were righteous, moral, and good. And so that illusion became so strong that they became unreachable. As I thought about this, Jesus, when you think about it, had little trouble reaching harlots, thieves, robbers, criminals, outcasts, and sinners of society, including tax collectors and extortionists. Why? Because they were not creating any sense of illusion that they were righteous. When they were told what was going on, they understood, they felt, they knew their shame. He didn't have to come to them saying, sinner, repent. The reality was so thin that when he came with his love, his very love brought about even greater shame. And there was this sense that they were attracted to him and yet they were kind of unsure that finally when Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, those of you who have sinned and understand your shame, are living very close to the reality of what things are like. You need to know there's a greater reality. There's a reality of a God who loves you, who takes your sin, removes your shame, takes the guilt if you give it to him, and he will cover it with his blood so that you'll become cleansed. He had little trouble reaching harlots, thieves, and robbers, criminals, outcasts, sinners of society, including tax collectors and extortionists. 
But he had an impossible time reaching the religious, self-righteous, moral people who were under the illusion that self-deception that they had, that self-deception created a goodness and that everything was okay between them and God. And they recognized no sin, so they needed no Savior. And that is always the danger of the church. The Pharisees were an extension of a movement of God. When God came by His Holy Spirit to a group of people, and the word Pharisee means that they were pure ones. They wanted to purify the, 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 the following after God. And God began to purify as He lived through their spirit and their hearts. And generations down the road later, this movement became an institution. An institution became an actual place where there was an illusion of goodness by the lives of the people living in it. And so we get to um, this whole point that I think is what Jesus is making, is morality with religiosity creates an illusion of safety when in fact a person who looks outwardly righteous may be in the greatest danger of all. And so chapter 12 concludes with verse 43 with our Lord's response. And he had just said, you'll be condemned by them. He's talking about the, the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba who had heard the message of Jonah and who had heard the message of Solomon. And he, he's about to say they believed when they heard that. But you'll be condemned, he says, just before this, before you stand one greater than Jonah and greater than Solomon, and you won't even believe or listen to him. And someday you will actually see the sign from heaven, which will be the death and resurrection of my life. And you will still, many of you, he will still reject it. And so that in 70 A.D., God finally comes and says, enough with the sham. And he, he actually destroys the temple so that the new temple that he was seeking to create and always wanted to create was a temple of his Holy Spirit living his heart of the laws of God in a loving, intentional way in the world around them so that the hearts would become the temples. And so these temples that have this kind of heart coming together, not out of a reformation desire that so that they could look good on the outside and preserve that, but out of a desire of an understanding that they need God more than anything else. They know their own sin. They're aware of that. They have given their guilt and their shame with this God and they now live under the smile and the love and the peace and the presence of God and in that place of security they no longer live in fear but they begin to live around the people that they are most often with their family their people in their community their friends they begin to live out of that heart and as they live out of that heart God lives through them and if I was in an African American church I would be hearing Amen and Jesus says, be warned, be careful. You can get all cleaned up on the outside while at the same time become even more spiritually messed up on the inside. So verses 43 through 45 are very clear. When an evil spirit comes out of a man seeking rest and does not find it, it says, I'll return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and it takes seven other spirits more wicked than themselves. It uses the word unclean spirit here, which is a very interesting thing. You got all cleaned up so that this unclean, which means immoral, filthy, vile, Spirit, this kind of character, begins to reside in the inside of that which looks really clean. And what you find here is really interesting. If you look at verse 45, it's not just this one, you know, before the Reformation project, it was a spirit that was somewhat vile and somewhat unclean and somewhat wicked and, and, and somewhat in its nature filthy. 
But now, he says in verse 5, he comes with seven others that are, that are actually a lot dirty. It, 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 they come in, and even though you're scrubbing the outside, the whitewashing the tomb, it's getting better and better by all your good acts and deeds and everything that looks like it's good from everything outside. What you find inside, it's getting messier and messier and rottener and rottener. But yet it's hard to break the illusion of the goodness because the goodness is being held in place by a will that does not want to submit to God. And I say this, and I know I'm speaking to some people. Because I know that in my own heart. I know that coming out of a a system of a family that helped create that kind of thing. You see, it wasn't immoral people. They weren't the ones who blasphemed Christ. It wasn't immoral people that put Him to execution. It wasn't the harlots, the thieves, and the murderers. It was the religious people who stood... And said, crucify him. And that's the danger of reformation. Mere reformation. Self-righteous people. So that verse 45, Jesus ends and says, the final condition of that man will be worse. In fact, it is worse. Here's the reality. It is worse than the first. There was a time in my life when... When I look back at when God got a hold of me, if I was to say there was a time I was saved, I can look at a time when I was a child. I think, you know, I don't know how the operation of the Spirit works in the regeneration of the heart individually. But I can tell you in my life, there was a time when I was little and I said yes to Jesus. But there was a distinct time when I was older. It was around my senior year, but it was a process over a period of time where I was, I was singing in this, what we called um, this, this choir, the young adult choir at a church in Rockford. And, and we were asked to give testimonies, which is an interesting thing to ask a high school person to give a testimony when they don't even know they got one. Seriously, that's... But we all had to give our testimony. It was supposed that we all had this regenerative act of God in our heart and our spirit because we were singing in this choir. And I remember doing everything I can. One, because I hated public speaking. I was so afraid to speak publicly, first of all. I used to sign up last on the list when it came in school to speak because I was always hoping they wouldn't get to me. Like, that's going to happen. And I remember it was around my freshman year in college when I was just really wrestling with what I was going to do with my life. And I was thinking, you know, maybe going into business and making money. And I just, and I had this time when I was hearing some messages being convicted in my heart, but I was wrestling with my testimony. I said, you know, God, you didn't really save me from some bad things. I was, I, and it was a really pretty good kid. And it was around that time when God began to get a hold of my heart and I began to realize this. God began to make it clear to me that my goodness was not as good as I thought and my badness was a lot worse than I knew. I began to realize that even though the fruits of my thoughts and intentions weren't becoming actions, that often if I paid attention, people would hear the words. And if I really got serious about it and began to look into my heart, I began to realize the seeds of that were in my heart. And I was creating an illusion of goodness that people would pat me on the back and say, good job. And internally, it was getting worse because the lie begins to develop and grow. And I remember 
I remember so clearly beginning to understand this. Almost like Jesus says, you judge him. At this point, he says to the Pharisees, you, you, remember, I, I was really concerned when I was reading this a couple of weeks ago. and going, God, Jesus, why didn't you say you judge him by your actions? That's a lot easier to tell than the words. But the reason he doesn't say actions there to the Pharisees is because they hadn't done it in actions at that point. Not until he crucified him could you actually see the actions, the fruit of it. And Jesus pushed that to happen. That's the reason why he didn't want anything to happen until the day they would put him on the cross, because that would reveal their hearts. And I have to tell you this, it's coming to me as I'm speaking, as, as you walk in truth, and you step in truth, and you do it in a loving way, it will push the person to a point where their words and their heart will eventually be exposed. That's a deep truth. And so this teaching is, is what got Jesus nailed to the cross. Just what I'm saying right here. Because Jesus would look out and he would say in a very general way, I don't know if he would look at anyone particularly, he'd say in a very general way, this is what's happening in this group. That's what he would say. And, and the people who are going, the truth, you're, you're get, look at, do not in any, this goodness, you see how good I am, you look at all my actions, I, I give a tenth of my, my, my income, I do all these things that, that it says in the Old Testament laws, in fact I even made up some more that are even more harder to do than what other people do. <laughs> right? Scott Peck. Another person, again, I don't take everything that he says as the gospel truth, but he has some things that are very on the mark. He writes in a book called People the Lie. And in it, he looks at the characteristics of individuals. He meets with these people as a psychiatrist. He's no longer alive. But Peck confessed to be a Christian, although not an evangelical Christian. And his purpose, even in this study, was not to present a biblical study of evil, but I'm amazed as I look at some of the characteristics he wrote about what he just saw in his profession as a professing Christian, how closely what he saw as evil and self-righteousness when it's in full blossom parallel each other. And as I was reading this this week, I said to some of the elders, Jesus was brilliant. And, and because he had the Spirit of God so fully in him, he was both God and man. Here's the characteristics of evil. I want you just to listen to this. And they are in a degree in all of us, okay? Because the heart is deceitful beyond cure, it says in Jeremiah. We all have the potential for this. We all have the gift to have a new heart given to us by God. But it does not mean in this life that we still don't pay attention to the seeds of evil that we are really good at controlling so it doesn't come out in behavior. But if you ask people, here's, here's the real mark. You know, the elders do a 360 review on me in some ways, and we do this review. The real good review is to ask my wife and kids. How would you like that for your review? But tell me the real truth. And so he says, one of the, one of the marks of a person who is evil, or, or what I would call moving deeply into reformation and self-righteousness, he says, it's not their sins per se that characterize evil people. The central defect of evil is not the sin, but the refusal to acknowledge it. And I'm not saying sin in a general sense. I'm saying when, when you are caught in the deed, in the act, you cannot acknowledge it. If evil people cannot be defined by the illegality of their deeds or the magnitude of their sins, then how do we define them? And he says the answer is by the consistency of their sins, their character in a sense. While the usually subtle their sins are, their destructiveness is remarkably consistent. 
Unpleasant though it may be, the sense of personal sin is precisely that which keeps our sin from getting out of hand. And it is quite painful at times, but it is a very great blessing because it is one of, and the only effective safeguard against our own proclivity for evil. That is how a person who is growing in holiness can see themselves as more sinful in their hearts. That is how a Paul, the apostle, can look out and go, I am the chief among sinners. There were people who did more than he did, but he knew his heart. And then he makes another few comments here. There's a self-image of perfection. Utterly dedicated to preserving this idea of outward goodness. The self-righteous unceasingly are engaged in an effort to maintain the appearance of moral purity. They worry about this a great deal. And if you've grown up in that kind of environment, I can tell you, even for myself, and I had an opportunity last night, I was in this place where I was more confused trying to make sure that what I was maybe going to do was going to be perceived as good and right here, rather than being able to look in my own heart and go, what's going on in my heart? What do I really want? What is it you want me to do, God? You ever been in that place? Excessive intolerance of criticism or a excessiveness of being critical. The self-righteous insist upon the affirmation of independent of all findings. They want to be affirmed. Self-criticism is a call to personality change. The self-righteous or the evil are pathologically attached to the status quo of their personalities. Scapegoating. They're, they're usually full of excuses. The self-righteous use, use of power is to destroy the spiritual growth for for, of others for the purposes of defending and preserving the integrity of their own selves. Since the self-righteous deep down feel themselves to be faultless, it is inevitable that when they are in conflict with the world, they will invariably perceive the conflict as the world's fault. Since they must deny their own badness, they must perceive others as bad, and they project their own evil onto the world. They can never think of themselves as evil. On the other hand, they consequently see much evil in others. Disguise and pretense. They intensely desire to appear good. They're masters of disguise. The wickedness of evil, and Jesus could have written this, is not committed directly, but indirectly as a part of their cover-up process. That's what he was finding all the time. And then, listen to this. If you've been in the, in the face of, if you want to call it dysfunction, you want to call it a self-righteous community, if you want, whatever you want to call it, he talks about intellectual deviancy or, or, or deviousness, and I would just call it confusion. A reaction that the self-righteous frequently engender in others is confusion. Describing an encounter with a person like that, they write, it's as if I had lost my, suddenly lost my ability to think. And the reaction there is quite appropriate. That's exactly, when you read the stories of Jesus and the reaction, someone is saying to me they were coming on Sunday mornings because they've never understood why the, you know, Jesus and the Pharisees had all this tiff going on. Well, the reason why is because the Pharisees were constant. What were they coming? They weren't just coming to question Jesus, see if he was in the side. They were coming to get him confused so they could create confusion in the masses so they wouldn't con- lose control. Confusion, because lies confuse. And I have to share with you, if you are a person, 
that, that is used to white lies and, and you, you, you live in half-truths or you live on that sense of if I can just tell a little bit of the truth and get away so that I can, through my words, that's why Jesus your words are the ones that are going to condemn you, they will seek to manipulate. It's kind of witchcraft in a sense. You use words to manipulate the reality so the person looks at you and though you've told a half-truth, you've given an external little sense of what it should be like in the realities. That's not true. And it creates confusion. It talks about control, but you see all over that. It's the imposition of a person's will upon others by overt and covert coercion in order to avoid spiritual growth, change. And there's a remarkable, a remarkable power in the manner when you look at these Pharisees and you look at self-righteous in desiring to control people and especially their behavior. Whole communities can be set up that way. And... Uh, Oh, there's more. In full bloom, self-righteousness is an evil, and probably the most characteristic thing of the self-righteous is what I talked about before. And I'm going to conclude with this. We are spiritual beings. You are going to live eternally. You will either live with God and in His presence and begin that today and move towards that, or you will be living eternally and beginning to move towards that in your character, towards hell, towards that self-righteous evil. That's, that's, that's reality. That's what the Word of God says. That's what Jesus said again and again. He never said it to try and scare you or to try and, and, and manipulate you. He was just saying, here's reality. If there's a step here, you better probably step down. He just wanted people to walk in such a way that they experience all the goodness that God created them. So he wants you to live in truth. He wants you to live in the reality. And so here we are, spiritual beings that will live forever, and we have been given a soul. Our soul is made up of our, our mind and our emotions. And most people are ruled either by your mind or your emotions. You choose your will according to what you want to think in your mind or what your emotions are guiding you by, Right? But the key is this. It's your will. It's, as Jesus said, you've been given a spirit. You have ears to hear. Will you open your spirit to the Spirit of God? And the key characteristic of the person who is not related to God through Jesus Christ, who is not related in relationship to Him spiritually, and I, that's why I've been talking about heart relation, not spiritually, because when I use the word spiritually, a lot of times people go back to all that they've ever heard, so they're back in this other language. I want to use a new language. It's heart relationship, where you open up your heart, you hear with the ears of your heart, and you... Take your will and you say, from this day forward, I will take my will. It's not about raising your hand so you can get into heaven someday. It's about raising your hand so your heart is open so that day by day you say, may your will live in me. 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 And as that happens, your character begins to change. In fact, sometimes as you move into that, you will go through some incredible times of difficulty because the truth will confront you and break the reality that has been false. But the person who doesn't want to move there will take his will and the most characteristic thing of the self-righteous person is an unsubmitted will. I'm not saying by the words he says because Jesus doesn't say a thing about words here. He says, here's the key. It's not what you confess or say even in that. It's even more than that. It's 
have you come to a place where you have submitted your will and your will is now submitted to God forever that through Jesus, the perfect picture and the representation of all that God is here on earth, who has given his life, who has given his life so that you might live forever, that you won't have to die and pay for your own sins. This God comes and says, if you will, shatter the illusion of self-righteousness in this reality. You submit your will to God and he will live through you. And I just wish there was a whole lot more people to hear this message. This is the gospel that Jesus died for. It's this that they wanted to quiet all the time. It's this that when they couldn't quiet, they finally had to shoot the messenger. And they hoped it would go away. But what they did not count on is that God in his nature is life. And life will always rise from the dead. Hallelujah. Let's stand together and pray. Father, it's often, it's just funny to me how even in nature you can take things and we have glare ice out there that is this coating of ice. And Jesus, I am going to ask, and I just, I, I guess ask you too, just in a moment if you want to even open your eyes, I'd time to talk to you. I want to ask God, together with you, to break any of the ice of righteousness, self-righteousness, of religiosity that is in this body. And if you want to do that, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand with me. And you don't have to. If you're not there, don't. Father, with these hands raised, we say together as a body, would you break all self-righteousness, all that religiosity, any coating of lies that would keep us from the presence of your spirit and truth. And do a work in us in a new and a fresh way. In the name of Jesus and by his Holy Spirit that he has given us. May the Father God be exalted. Amen.